Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Thank you guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, It's a real privilege to have been here with you guys this weekend. And um, even though our time was really short, um, I just, I feel uh, a closeness with you guys that um, I think I'm going to miss you guys once I leave here. So uh, hopefully we have a chance to visit you again and speak. Um, I think we're, I'm going to be giving the uh, second sermon for the service today because I think the first sermon was the triangle of love. So I realize uh, I think you give a preacher a mic and he's going to preach, right? So I think the announcements turned into a sermon, but I was like, actually, I was actually really blessed by it. So I was like, Oh, yeah, I could use that for my church, you know, and uh, I was actually visualizing it, taking the word love, and then taking the V and turning it upside down and making it a, a triangle or something, I don't know, anyway, so, yeah, <laughs> um, but like I said, it's been a real pleasure to be with you guys this weekend, and uh, the little that we've been able to just even, you know, talk to each other here, your heart, even through the questions that you've been asking, uh, I get a sense of how actively and um, passionately you guys want to follow Jesus. And so in that spirit, as we're closing out this retreat, um, I was actually going to preach on something else about brokenness and calling, but I decided to change the message sort of last minute and, um, and change it to um, uh, preaching on a passage in Matthew chapter 7, uh, which is about building uh, on the foundation of Jesus. And so I want to do that. Looks like we have a little bit of technical issues here, so we'll just give them a quick second here. Very good. Okay, great. So at my church in Chicago, I um, recently preached through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's been, um, it's probably my favorite passage in all the Scripture. It's uh, the most extended single teaching of Jesus found anywhere in the Bible where I, I believe he is laying out his fundamental framework or blueprint for what it means to f- be a follower of his, to live the kingdom life. Um, I think any curriculum on discipleship cannot exclude the Sermon on the Mount because I think it's absolutely central to the heart of Jesus and what he expects of his followers. And so... I want to take the very end of that sermon and unpack it for you a little bit today as a final thought that I want to leave you with in terms of what it means to be his disciple, be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we close this retreat, we believe that this was a really a holy moment for us um, to set aside all the busyness and the distractions of our life and to give you our full undivided attention. And we thank you that in seeking you, you have uh, met us here in this place. We know that commitments were made and lives were surrendered and, um, and desires were expressed, sins were confessed and uh, brokenness acknowledged. And so in all that we have given uh, before you, we pray that you would continue the work you've begun in us. Uh, to be that perfecter of our faith as we seek you with all of our heart. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin, um, I, I was telling Pastor Seth, I'm such a movie buff that uh, I think I could begin every one of my sermons with a movie clip, actually, uh, because I love movies so much. Um, <clears throat> probably a movie that most of you have never watched, uh, but it's an older one called The Remains of the Day. Has anyone actually watched this movie? One? <laughs> one person, all right. Great. All right. Um, it's actually based on a novel by a Japanese uh, author named Kazuo Ishiguro, if you've ever heard of him. And it tells the story of this butler named Mr. Stevens, who's played by the actor Anthony Hopkins. And he's the head butler at this estate known as Darlington Hall in England during World War II. And the movie revolves around a series of these memories that Mr. Stevens has as he reflects on the life that he's chosen to live. And the two scenes that I want to show you are uh, spliced together. I edited so that I took two different scenes in the movie and put them together as one. And they're going to show you the interaction between Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton, who is the housekeeper of the estate, played by Emma Thompson. And you might not know all the culture of British servant life, but in, in, a, in a British uh, estate, um, the custom is that the head butler and the housekeeper are in charge of the, all the servants in the estate, and they're equal in authority to each other, the, the butler and the housekeeper. And so the first scene that I'm going to show you is a little after the housekeeper, Mrs. Kenton, arrives. Ms. Kenton arrives and starts working on the estate. And then the second scene that you'll see is after they've been working together for a number of years and are a lot more familiar with each other, okay? So let's go ahead and watch that clip, and then we'll go on. Some of you girls are like, I know guys like that. <laughs> Mr. Stevens... Um, his entire life is centered on the importance of faithful devotion and service to his employer, Lord Darlington. And because of this dedication to his job, he is unable to act on um, or even to acknowledge his attraction to Miss Kenton. And therefore, he never returns her overtures of love. He's so consumed by a sense of duty that he is unable to acknowledge the longings and the emotions that he feels toward her. And so confronted by Miss Kenton about the novel that he's reading, he replies that he's only reading it to improve his English. And in fact, his commitment to his job is so total that even as his father is dying upstairs, uh, he instead chooses to attend to a dinner party that Lord Darlington is holding. And in fact, his devotion to his job blinds him to the truth that Lord Darlington is actually a Nazi sympathizer, it turns out. And this guy ends up helping to steer England in a wrong course towards supporting Nazi Germany, or at least not confronting Hitler as he is invading Europe. And so it's only many years later as Mr. Stevens reflects on his life that he comes to the painful realization that he's been living for all the wrong things. 
so consumed by a sense of duty that he rejected what could have been a fulfilling relationship with the love of his life. And he pledged unwavering devotion to an unworthy man who would become a traitor to his country. Because he lived by a flawed life philosophy. And that philosophy shipwrecked his life. And that's what the movie is all about. And so as I begin this final message, I want to ask you, what is your life philosophy? What is your life philosophy? I would argue this. It's really hard to articulate it for any of us. Uh, we all have beliefs about ourselves and about others, about life, that drive us to pursue the goals that we have in life and to make the choices that we make. But the truth is, it's, it's very hard to uncover what those foundational philosophies actually really are. Maybe for you, you think that your worth is determined by your career and the status that you gain in your job. Or for you, your life philosophy may be that family is all that matters. Or for some of you, your life philosophy is that life is unfair and that you've been dealt a horrible hand in life. And so everything flows out of that resentment and bitterness that you hold about life. And so this is essentially what Jesus is asking as he closes the Sermon on the Mount. What foundation are you building your life? Um, and listen, if you know anything about construction, if you put in a bad air conditioner, you can replace it, right? Even if the roof isn't that great, you can replace a roof. But if you build a building on a bad foundation, it ruins everything, doesn't it? That's when walls begin to crack and floors begin to sink. And I think the same is true for our life. These foundational truths are so basic that most of us go through our life without ever questioning them. But we need to question them because they are going to determine our destinies. And so Jesus uses the metaphor of building a house to help us understand about these foundational truths on which we are building a life. What I'm saying is this. All of us must embrace a truth for our lives. And it becomes the foundation on which everything else will be built our careers, our families, our hopes and dreams, even our character, the kind of person that we will become. And if there is any passage in the Bible that outlines what that foundation ought to be built on, I think it is the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus closes his sermon, he does so by looking at these three contrasts, two roads, two trees, and then two houses. And what he's getting at by making each one of these contrasts is this. He's saying, I have taught you now the life that you need to live. And then he says this in essence, now the choice is yours. You have a choice to make about what you're going to do with this teaching, whether or not you will follow. The third contrast of the two houses is what I want to look at in verses 24 to 27 of Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built 
uh, his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's a few simple points I want to make based on this teaching of Jesus. And the first one is this. A choice must be made whether we will be a disciple of Jesus and obey his teaching. I think what Jesus is saying is this. All of us are building a house. That is not an option. You are building a house whether you want to or not. The question is, on what foundation are you building that house? When Jesus says all of us are building a house, what he is in essence saying is all of us are building a life for ourselves. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says this, who teaches you? Whose disciple are you? Honestly, one thing is sure, you are somebody's disciple. You learn how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule, for human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep learning from others how to live. Aristotle remarked that we owe more to our teachers than our parents. For though our parents gave us life, our teachers taught us the good life. Probably you are the disciple of several somebodies, and it's very likely that they shape you in ways that are far from what is best for you, or even coherent. You are quite certainly, as I am, uh, the student of a few crucial people, living and dead, who have been there in crucial times and periods to form your standard responses and thoughts, feeling, and action. It is one of the major transitions in life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, and sometimes we, can't, we just can't face it. But it can also open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. Willard is basically asking all of us, who has shaped the person that you've become? And I think there's a certain pride in all of us that says, no one shaped me. Like, I'm a self-made person, right? Like, I decided the kind of person I'm going to become. But that's a lie. None of us are that strong. All of us observe the life of somebody else that we respected or just maybe didn't even respect, but just influenced us. And we all have been shaped by other people. And the question is, whose disciple are you? Who is it that molded you into the person that you've become? And have you reached the point in your life where you actually understand who those key people in your life are? And then the next step of maturity is to be able to evaluate and ask, was that a good foundation on which to build my life? The only difference between these two builders is that one heard the words of Jesus and obeyed them. In other words, put them into practice, and the other did not. In other words, the distinction is the choice of discipleship. Will I or will I not follow the teaching of Jesus. And what I want to say to you very clearly this morning is this. 
you can choose to attend HMCC every Sunday. In fact, you can even choose to become a member of HMCC. You can choose to join a life group. You can choose to volunteer for a ministry in this church. But that does not mean that you have chosen to follow Jesus as his disciple. In other words, what I am saying is when it comes to it ultimately, you still live according to your own rules, your wisdom. You have, in other words, not surrendered authority to Jesus in your life. And over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus presses everyone who he encounters to that point of decision. Will you choose to follow me or not? To be a disciple is to enter into an intentional process of reformation, being shaped into the character of Jesus himself. That is what discipleship is all about. Christ formed in you that you bear his likeness in your life. Meaning that all of the choices that we make in our life are guided by who Jesus is. This leads me to the second point that I want to make today. And it is that a life of abundance flows out of a life of obedience. I want to ask you, how do you define the abundant life? Or maybe another way I could ask it is like this. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? What were you hoping for when you became a Christian? Because what I want to argue is this. For most of us, what we want from Jesus is to change our circumstances. It's interesting, but after his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples who were walking on this road to this town called Emmaus. And they didn't recognize him. And so Jesus engages in conversation with them, and he's asking, what is all this commotion going on in Jerusalem? And they shared about how hopeful they were that Jesus was the true Messiah. And through the powerful miracles that he performed, all of those hopes were dashed when the Romans nailed him to a cross. And then this is something very telling that they said to him, not knowing that they were talking to Jesus. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, to them, Jesus as Savior meant that he would set Israel free from Roman occupiers and restore Israel to its former glory as a nation like they experienced in the days of King David. And as a result of that expectation, they were sorely disappointed when Jesus died on the cross. But I wonder how you would complete their sentence. I had hoped that Jesus would have gotten me into that top university. I had hoped that Jesus would have healed my father. I had hoped that Jesus would have provided our family with that money when we so desperately needed it. I think for a lot of us, it is the sentiment that if Jesus does not change my circumstances, and if he doesn't fix my problems, then what good is he as a savior? What use is he to me? But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is getting at is this abundant life that he is offering us isn't so much about changing the circumstances 
in our life, but changing our hearts to become the kind of people that can live a flourishing life. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you will discover is that there are actually a lot of things that are very welcoming. Because who doesn't want to live a life that is free of lust or envy or anger or resentment or worry or materialism? A life where we're constantly searching for the praise of others or paralyzed by the criticism of people. A life that is marked by peace and joy. Don't we all want this life? But if you read the entire sermon, there's also stuff in there that makes us not want to follow Jesus so much. Like loving those who hurt us and blessing those who curse us. And offering the other cheek to the person who attacks us. Or going out of our way to help someone who forces themselves on us, not respecting personal boundaries. Or giving up our rights for the benefit of others. But what Jesus is trying to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount is that these are not in opposition to each other, but they actually go hand in hand. That this obedience is not a threat to the life of abundance, but it is the very means to experiencing that life of abundance. Again, Dallas Willard says it like this, kingdom obedience is kingdom abundance. There are, they are not two separate things. The inner condition of the soul from which strength and love and peace flow is the very same condition that generously blesses the oppressor and lovingly offers the other cheek. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that instinct in us of self-interest to retaliate when someone hurts us or to judge those who we think are beneath us or to envy those who have more than us, all of that undermines our ability to experience the life of peace and joy. That's why you are not experiencing abundant life. It's not because there are bad people in your life. It is not because of the circumstances that need to change. It is your heart that needs to change. And what Jesus is interested in is giving you a new heart so that you can bring the light of God into the darkest situations that you face. A pastor in America by the name of Alan Kraft writes about how he was trying to help this guy who was a church member of his whose marriage was falling apart. And so in a moment of desperation, this husband reached out to him and this is what happened in his interaction with this guy. Late one evening, I received a phone call from a distraught husband whose wife had just left him. Heartbroken, he assured me of his desire to do anything to get her back. He was desperate, so we began to talk. As I listened to him share his perspective, I suggested that he take some time to look deeply at his own heart and accept responsibility for the hurt he had caused in the relationship. That suggestion was met with silence. After a few minutes of further conversation, I mentioned it again, only to receive the same disinterested response. It was becoming evident that what he wanted was a short list of things to do to get her back, maybe a book to read or a communication technique. It was just as evident that he didn't want what he didn't want, having to look honestly at his heart and his actions. He didn't want to look at his own brokenness, to face the hurt and pain his self-centeredness had caused. He wanted a quick fix, a list of things to do. 
I think Kraft describes the frustration that every pastor has experienced trying to counsel a church member, right? Listen. Pain is often a great motivator to cause us to seek help in a moment of crisis. I know when a church member shows up in my office, asks for, for counseling, they're at the very end of their rope, right? When the pain is strong enough, it can help us overcome our fear of the embarrassment and the humiliation of exposing our brokenness to a pastor or a counselor and say, I need help here. I need help. But this is also what I want to say to you. Wanting relief from your pain is not enough to bring about the necessary change to solve your problems. This husband was basically asking, tell me what I must do to get my wife back to me, who's left me. In other words, what he was basically telling Alan Kraft is, you're a pastor, right? Like, you went to seminary. Like, you, you reach into your bag of tricks and tell me some technique to do to, to, to manipulate my wife and tell her to come back to me. When what he really needed to ask is, what needs to change in me to salvage my broken marriage? In other words, if all that motivates us is to get past the crisis and get back to the way things used to be, I just want things to be normal again, then we will not be willing to undergo the kind of deep transformation needed to experience a life of flourishing. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We want God to fix our circumstances, but God wants to fix our hearts, forming us into the kind of people who can experience a life of flourishing regardless of circumstances. Amen? I doubt you know who this guy is. His name is James Howell. And he recently made headline news. He lives in England. Back a decade ago in 2013, he's an IT specialist, he's a computer science guy. And he threw away a hard drive. And it contained <laughs> the password for 8,000 bitcoins, which he had mined at the early days of that cryptocurrency. And that hard drive is now buried in a landfill in Newport, Wales. A decade later, at the age of 37, he is still desperately trying to recover that hard drive. He has, in fact, assembled a specialized team of consultants. And he now wants to dig through thousands of tons of garbage in search of that single hard drive that he threw away a decade ago. He's, in fact, writing code for artificial intelligence to be able to detect when they find that hard drive. But the city officials at Newport have been reluctant to give him the permit to do this. Because when you're digging up that much garbage, you're releasing all kinds of toxins into the environment, aren't you? So they've declined his request. And so in order to change their minds, he said he would give them 10% of the value of this Bitcoin. And he has promised every citizen of that city $60. <laughs> Why is this guy willing to go through all of this to do this? 
because that hard drive is worth over $180 million right now. Can you imagine how many sleepless nights this guy must have thinking about the day when he threw away the hard drive? Totally clueless to what the value of that Bitcoin would one day be. I share this story with you because the truth is we often don't understand the value of the things that are placed before us. That story of James Howells reminds me of another story that Jesus told. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Pastor Seth made reference to this passage last night. Listen, Jesus told this story, obviously, to show about the immeasurable value of God's kingdom. But I think it also highlights the fact that the value of that kingdom is often hidden to us, and we don't recognize it. Because people observing this guy cashing out his entire estate to buy this field would have looked at him and said, you fool. What kind of an idiot does that? This field is worthless. Nobody understands that there's a treasure buried underneath it. And so having concluded his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is basically asking his audience, do you understand the treasure that I have just given you? That this is the answer to everything that you're searching for in your life. But the truth is most of us won't recognize that. Why would I want to turn the other cheek and love my enemy? How is that an answer to anything? How is that the path to abundant life? This leads me to the last point that I want to make. Storms reveal the foundation on which you've built your life. You see, based on the houses themselves, they're indistinguishable. The difference is not the houses. If you look at the houses, they're the same. They look like they're built the same. It's not until the storms come that the difference between these two houses is exposed because they are built on two totally different foundations. And I would argue that the same is true for our lives. The truth is when everything is good and everything is okay, it's not always that easy to tell the difference between a follower of Jesus and someone who doesn't follow him. We all attend the same university and we all work in the same companies, don't we? We all, our Facebook pages and our Instagram pages all look about the same. We vacation in the same places, and we live in the same neighborhoods, and we eat at the same restaurants. It's not until the storms of your life come when the foundation on which you've built your life will truly be revealed. And here's the difficult truth. There's no escaping it. Storms will come. Storms will come. And I want to ask you, what will those storms reveal about the foundation of your life? 
Will you panic and crumble when you are faced with your greatest fears? Will you fight and rage against injustices done to you and attack back like a cornered animal? Will you grab for every opportunity for more money because you think money will offer you the security and the happiness in uncertain times? Or will your years of obedience to following the way of Jesus reveal a heart that can weather any storm because you know that Jesus is always with you? I think what Jesus is saying is this. In a world that is filled with uncertainty and risk, He alone is the foundation that is solid enough on which to build a life that could weather any storm. I want to go back to this idea of counting the cost of following Jesus because honestly, I think we totally misunderstand that teaching. When we hear Jesus saying, count the cost of following me, I think what we hear, I, I don't know, you guys are not Americans, but if, if I were to kind of describe it in a way that Americans could understand, it's like Jesus is saying, embrace the suck. Do you know what I mean by that? <laughs> I mean like, it's going to be really, really, really hard. So just suck it up and get ready to be miserable, right? Like, like following Jesus is a bitter pill. But you got to take the pill, otherwise you're going to die, right? And so what are you going to do? It kind of sucks, but you got to follow Jesus. That's what it means to count the cost. Listen, these calls to count the cost have to be understood in light of that parable of the field and the treasure. It is not about embracing what you are anticipating to be a miserable life. But it is about having a moment of clarity where what you realize when you do the math is following Jesus is actually better than not following him. That's what he means when he says count the cost. What he is in essence saying is there is a cost to following Jesus, but the cost of not following him is far greater. This person who built his house on the sand lost everything. His life was utter devastation when that storm came. In that parable about the hidden treasure, it is because this man counted the cost and he did the math that he sold everything that he had and it says he bought that field with joy, with joy because he realized I am getting the bargain of a lifetime <laughs> to sell everything else to have Jesus is to have the world is to have everything. He realized that gaining Jesus was far greater than anything he was asked to give up. And that's why he made that transaction with joy. And it's not until you understand that math that you will choose to follow him because if you don't understand that math, you will never follow Jesus. It just won't seem worth it to you. So I want to ask as I close this message, what do your life choices reveal about what you truly believe to be the good life? Greg Tanelshoff says this, with very few exceptions, 
No one has any trouble acting out their beliefs. You do act in accordance with your beliefs. More likely, you just don't believe what you thought of yourself as believing. Rather than trying to work up behavior consistent with what we think we believe, we should be begging with the man who wanted desperately for Jesus to free his son from the demon that possessed him. I believe, help my unbelief. As I said to you last night, the fight that every Christian fights is the fight of faith. Do I believe what Jesus promises me? Again, Dallas Willard says, perhaps the hardest thing for sincere Christians to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their own life. The unformulated skepticism about Jesus that permeates all dimensions of their being and undermines what efforts they do make toward Christ-likeness. I think the difficult truth for a lot of us to swallow is, maybe I don't believe really what I say I believe by the way I live my life. And so the invitation of Jesus to each of us stands this day. Will you choose to follow me? Do you trust me enough as your master, as your teacher, to embrace the life I invite you to? And do you believe that following me in that way will lead to the kind of abundance and flourishing that you so desperately want? Willard has um, something interesting to say about what he observes in most discipleship programs in churches today. And he compares them to swimming lessons or learning how to ride a bicycle, and he says this. Imagine, if you can, discovering in your church letter or bulletin announcement an announcement of a six-week seminar on how genuinely to bless someone who is spitting on you. Or suppose that announced seminar was on how to live without purposely indulging lust or covetousness, or how to quit condemning the people around you, or on how to be free of anger and all its complications. Imagine also a guarantee that at the end of the seminar, those who have done the prescribed studies and exercises will actually be able to bless those who are spitting on them and so on in practical matters. To teach people to do something is to bring them to the point where they actually do it on the appropriate occasions. When you teach children or adults to ride a bicycle or swim, they actually do ride bikes or swim on appropriate occasions. You don't just teach them that they ought to ride bicycles or that it is good to ride bicycles or that they should be ashamed if they don't. Listen, imagine if you signed up to learn how to swim and so you took a 12-week swimming course and you're already weeks into it and it's all in the classroom and so you're learning about the physics of swimming, <laughs> about the molecular structure of water as two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom and you're studying the properties of viscosity and you're learning the physics of buoyancy water resistance, Poussoyer's law, and all these things, right? And, um, and this is going on for all 12 weeks. And in the last 12th week, you get on your swimsuits, and then you go into the pool, in the kiddie pool, and the teacher lets you touch the water. 
go, oh, oh, this is what it feels like. And then you all come out of the water and say, you're all swimmers now. <laughs> and you're so excited that you're all swimmers that you decide to make a swim club. And every week you meet at the pool. And then you review all the notes and go, who remembers the equation for buoyancy? And someone raised that. Oh, you're the best swimmer here because you knew that equation. But you never go in the water. <laughs> and the truth is, if you went in there, you would all drown, right? That would be the most ridiculous swim club in the world, wouldn't it? But sadly, that's what discipleship looks like in a lot of churches. Are you actually learning how to do the things that Jesus has commanded you to do? I think that's the challenge that lays before us as we leave this retreat. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? It doesn't mean just to agree in your head that, oh yeah, that's really good stuff. And I got a lot of good notes from the retreat. The invitation is to leave this place and to do the things that he has commanded us to do. And Jesus says to us something really important in this. John chapter 14, 15 to 18. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What Jesus is talking about is this. If you love him, he equates loving him with following his commands. That's discipleship. But he is also saying, I am not leaving you on your own to do this. Because that life is an impossible life done in the flesh. You will end that journey with frustration. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send my spirit to you that you can live the life I have called you to live. The spirit-filled life. And I feel confident ending this retreat and ending my time with you with these words because I know you are in a good church here. That is not all about talk and filling your head with knowledge. But I know Pastor Seth strongly believes that discipleship is about doing the things that God has called us to do. And so learn from this church what it means to follow the way of discipleship and to live out your faith in every way that God has called us to. Let's pray. As we close out this retreat, um, can I just invite you to a final moment of reflection as you think about the foundation on which you're building your life. And like I said at the beginning, you can choose to be a member of HMCC. You can choose to join a life group. You can choose to volunteer and all kinds of things. But let me tell you this, that is not the same as choosing to follow Jesus. Because maybe underneath that still is a lust that controls you and you're addicted to pornography. And then underneath that is all of this materialism and what you really are pursuing is money. And the truth is you have not really been set free from any of that. And so Jesus in the starkest term says, will you 
choose to follow me. And he does say, count the cost. Count the cost. But as I said, the point is not because it's going to really stink and it's going to be a miserable life, so just buckle up and just deal with it. He says, count the cost because when you actually do the math, you will discover that what I offer you is more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. And I do ask you to surrender some things. But what you gain is far greater than what you lose. That's why the man sold all he had and he bought that field. And the key phrase to me in that whole story is he bought it with joy, with joy. When I have Jesus, I have everything. I have found what I've been searching for all of my life. That is why in 2007 in Kenya, when I looked at the prospect of facing my own death, and maybe even the death of my children, I could still say, I fear nothing because I have found what I've been searching for all of my life. And for him, I would give up everything, everything, because he has given me everything. Let me just invite you to come before God and this is a commitment that none of us can make just on our own strength. But I think through the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in us, we can say, yes, Jesus. I don't, I don't know. It intimidates me. I'm afraid. There's still fear in my heart. But what I make is a declaration to say, I will follow you. I will follow you, Jesus. So let me just invite you to a moment of prayer before God. And I'm going to invite Pastor Seth to just close out our time together in a time of response, but let's just in this moment with you and God, just come before him and say, God, I feel like I made a lot of choices that are very churchy and maybe swimming around the circle of religion, but the truth is, God, sometimes I don't know if I've really said, I will follow you as my master, as my savior, as my Lord. And maybe that is the declaration that you can make this day. I will follow you, God. I will follow you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.